Philly, you are so wonderful and interesting. You deserve a local news podcast all your own. Check out the John Cast on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. This is KYW News Radio In Depth. I'm Matt Leon. Judges are a critical part of a system designed to provide, amongst other things, accountability. But who holds judges accountable for things like discrimination and harassment? It's an important question that in many cases has no clear answer. Now, there is legislation proposed that would help hold federal judges accountable and provide workplace protections for employees within the federal judiciary. Eliza Schatzman is an attorney and an advocate for the proposed Judicial Accountability Act, and this is a cause that's personal for her, as you will hear. So to start, uh, the idea of judicial accountability is obviously it's important to you it's personal to you kind of tell us your story what you went through sure so i served as a law clerk in the superior court of the district of columbia or dc superior court during the 2019 to 2020 term Um, dc superior court is a local trial court in the district of columbia and i chose the clerkship because i wanted to be a homicide prosecutor in the dc u.s attorney's office and D.C. prosecutors appear before D.C. Superior Court judges. So unfortunately, beginning just weeks into the clerkship, I began to experience gender discrimination and harassment by the judge for whom I clerked. Um, He would kick me out of the courtroom, tell me I made him uncomfortable, and he just felt more comfortable with my male co-clerk. He told me I was bossy, aggressive, nasty, a disappointment. The day I found out that I passed the D.C. bar exam, so big day in my life, He called me into his inner chambers, got in my face and told me, you're bossy. And I know bossy because my wife is bossy. And I was just devastated. I cried on the walk to work. I cried myself to sleep at night. I wanted to be reassigned to a different judge, but my workplace did not have an employee dispute resolution or ER plan in place at the time that might have enabled me to be reassigned. So eventually we transitioned to remote work during the pandemic in March. I moved back to Philly to stay with my parents and worked remotely. The judge basically ignored me for six weeks before he called me up and told me he was ending my clerkship early because I made him uncomfortable and lacked respect for him, but he didn't want to get into it. So I called HR for the DC courts and they told me there was nothing they could do because HR doesn't regulate judges and that Judges and law clerks have a unique relationship. And they asked me, didn't I know that I was an at-will employee? So it took me about a year to get back on my feet after that. I moved back to D.C. after securing my dream job as a prosecutor in the D.C. U.S. Attorney's Office. I was two weeks into training when I received some devastating news that altered the course of my life. I was told the judge had made negative statements about me during my background investigation that I would not be able to obtain a security clearance and that my job offer was being revoked. Tried to advocate for myself, but they said the decision was final and they wouldn't tell me what the judge had said about me. So I filed a judicial complaint with the DC Commission on Judicial Disabilities and Tenure. That's the regulatory body for DC judges. I hired attorneys and in the summer and fall of 2021 participated in the investigation into the now former judge. Uh, We were partway through the investigation when I found out the judge was on leave 
on administrative leave pending an investigation into other misconduct and that he'd already agreed to take leave at the time he filed the outrageous negative reference about me. I was able to see the reference through settlement negotiations several months later, but by that time it was too late. The damage had been done and I am pretty much blackballed from my dream job. And the judge has faced very few consequences for his misconduct, despite the enormous damage he's done to my life. So what are you doing now? Obviously, you're advocating, but what is your what are you doing now? Yeah, so I'm involved in a variety of advocacy projects, writing and speaking on the subject of judicial harassment. I'm also advocating for the Judiciary Accountability Act or the JAA. That's H.R. 4827 and S2553. And that's a bill that would protect law clerks in situations like mine and would enable law clerks and federal public defenders to sue judges and seek damages for harm done to their careers and reputations. What is the status right now of the JAA? So there was a hearing before the House Judiciary uh, Courts Subcommittee in March, and we are hoping there'll be a Senate hearing in the next couple months, but that's still up in the air. Um, right now, I'm hoping that there will be more co-sponsors. The JAA, um, the only member of the Pennsylvania delegation right now who's a co-sponsor of the JAA is Representative Madeline Dean, which is heartening. But uh, Pennsylvania has four, at least four federal courthouses, the Eastern, Middle and Western Districts and the Third Circuit's located in Philly. And so I'm just hoping there'll be more co-sponsors. People are often outraged to learn that the entire federal judiciary is exempt from Title VII of the Civil Rights Act and that over 30,000 judiciary employees are not protected by anti-discrimination laws. Yet this bill and this issue just have not gotten the attention they deserve. So I'm hoping that by sharing my story, putting a personal face, personal story on an abstract issue, I can kind of shore up support. Um, I know that Congress has a lot going on right now, but this, um, this issue can't wait another year. And so I'm hoping this will be top of legislators' minds. Those 30,000 employees not being covered by that uh, feature or bug? <laughs> um, I mean, a feature, I would say. So in 1964, when Title VII Civil Rights Act was passed, all three branches of the federal government were exempt. Then in 1995, um, Congress passed two laws. They passed the Congressional Accountability Act and the Presidential and Executive Office Accountability Act. That then protected congressional staffers and executive branch employees under Title VII. At that time, the judiciary was vociferously opposed to being covered under Title VII, and they won that battle. So, um, yeah. And that's kind of where it stood since then? Unfortunately, yes. Um, every couple of years, the issue of harassment in the judiciary gets some attention because there's a hearing. There was a Senate hearing in 2018 and a House hearing in 2020, and the uh, Allegations against former Judge Kaczynski in 2017, he's a former Ninth Circuit judge, I think kind of spurred this legislation and spurred some new interest in this issue. Um, but yeah, I mean, this is an outrage that so many people are unprotected by anti-discrimination laws. I mean, the judiciary likes to tout its EDR, Employee Dispute Resolution Plan, as you know the catch-all solution to harassment in the judiciary, but that is woefully insufficient protection. And Law clerks and federal public defenders like Karen Strickland, who's currently suing judiciary officials in the Fourth Circuit right now, um, they are just harassed with impunity by these judges who believe that they are untouchable. Your story and other 
things kind of when you're doing a lot of these podcasts, digging into how the sausage is made in the legal world, it, it really does seem to me that overall we have a real problem in this country with a lack of oversight for the judiciary. And it seems like, and this is something in reading your your statement that was submitted to the subcommittee, uh, a lot of it seems like, specifically in D.C., it's almost set up so that everybody can point to everybody else and say, well, they can handle it, I think. I can't handle it. They can handle it. And then that person says, oh, I can't handle it. They can handle it. And it's kind of almost nebulous by design. Absolutely. Just every group is able to disclaim responsibility. Um, in my case, um, with the D.C. court system, yes, the EEO office, HR, everybody, the chief judge is able to disclaim responsibility for these misbehaving local judges. And then the D.C. Commission on Judicial Disabilities and Tenure, which is supposed to regulate these folks, is just toothless. I mean, they've never in the 51, 52 years, the D.C. courts, they've never disciplined or moved a judge for gender discrimination or harassment, which is ridiculous because they're judges on the bench right now committing misconduct. So yes, in both the D.C. and the federal judiciaries, just everyone disclaims responsibility for these misbehaving judges. It's really troubling. And it doesn't seem like it would be that hard to set up a system if you genuinely wanted to, no? Um, I would agree with that. I mean, these folks just do not want to be regulated. Um, I think that's a huge problem. And they have life tenure, which I think is incredibly dangerous. They act as if they are untouchable um, and no one challenges them on it. You know, law clerks rarely speak out and sh share their stories, which is why I think it's so important to share mine. Um, yes, these folks just do not want to be regulated. And they're hoping no one will question them. They they are hoping that this bill will just die quietly. And I'm you know going to keep speaking out until this bill passes. Uh, you mentioned the bill. Are you sensing momentum? Like you know, from your advocacy work, people you've talked to, you know, are are you getting the sense that more eyes are are getting on this? Are you frustrated with the progress? You know, kind of what are you seeing? Um. I mean, I am optimistic and also frustrated. I think renewed attention is on this issue over the past couple of weeks because Karen Strickland, the former PD in North Carolina who's suing judiciary officials, um, her case was reversed on appeal. And so some of her claims can move forward. And that got renewed attention on the issue of harassment in the judiciary and these 30,000 unprotected employees for a couple of days. But there are a lot of other issues requiring legislators' uh, attention and I think this needs a Senate hearing to get some more momentum. Is there anywhere that you've come across, you know, as you've kind of dug into this over the last several months, that's actually doing it right? Any circuits, any levels where you've kind of looked at and they've got a pretty good system in place of checks and balances on the judiciary? That's a good question. Um, so the federal judiciary is regulated by centralized laws, the Judicial Conduct and Disability Act is the disciplinary procedure for federal judges. And then obviously, um, DC is doing a terrible job with its local judges. Um, but there are state court jurisdictions that are definitely doing better. I've spoken with judges in a variety of states. Um, I've spoken with them about their disabilities and tenure commissions. And there, yes, there are state court jurisdictions that are doing a better job. 
I should differentiate that those folks do not have life tenure. Um, state court judges are typically appointed or elected for 10 to 15 year terms and they face re-election or reappointment. Um, but a lot of those judges perceive themselves to have de facto life tenure and yet um, they are effectively regulated. So I think the federal judiciary should look to some of these state court systems. Let's kind of circle back the the JAA. We talked a little bit about it earlier in the discussion, kind of really dig into this uh, and explain to people uh, as best you can what this would do kind of in the real world. Sure. So the Judiciary Accountability Act or the JAA, that's HR 4827 in the House and S2553 is the companion bill in the Senate. This is an extremely important piece of legislation. And it basically has three major parts to its framework. The first is that it would finally protect judiciary employees, including law clerks and federal public defenders under Title VII of the Civil Rights Act, which means they'd be able to sue judges and federal defenders and seek damages for harm done to their lives, careers, reputations, and future earning potential. The second part is that it would finally create accountability for judicial misconduct. Um, it would revise the definition of judicial misconduct in Title 28 of the U.S. Code to clarify that it does include discrimination and retaliation. Importantly, it would specify that judges who retire, resign, or die, those investigations into their misconduct will not cease. Currently, they do, and that's a problem. Um, it would also standardize employee dispute resolution or EDR plans among all the circuits. And it would create confidential reporting systems for law clerks to report mistreatment. And the third part, which I think doesn't get enough attention, is it would impose some data collection requirements on the judiciary. It would finally require them to conduct a workplace culture assessment. With they, they have historically refused to do that. Um, it would also collect data on the outcomes of judicial misconduct complaints, as well as the lack of diversity in clerkship hiring. So those are the three major parts to the JAA. I think it's a strong piece of legislation. Um, it's not getting enough attention, but if you are moved by my story and others like it, and you're as outraged as I am that um, the judiciary is exempt from Title VII, you should call your member of Congress, your House member and your senators and tell them to vote for the Judiciary Accountability Act. On a personal level, what are you when you have these discussions and you talk to people and your name has been out there for a while connected to this, what are you hearing? Are you getting a lot of people that say, Hey, I can't, I, I can't say this on the record, but thank you for what you're doing. Or are you getting a lot of pushback from people saying, you know, I, I'd get off this topic if I were you, what are you, you know, without giving anything away, but what are you hearing? What are you getting? Sure. I mean, the response has been overall very positive. I've definitely had lots of people reach out, um, law clerks, attorneys, judges, a variety of folks to thank me for what I'm doing and voice their support. Um, I mean, the main pushback I have faced, unfortunately, is from the D.C. courts. They are just unwilling to engage with me, unwilling to speak with me. I've made clear that I think specific policy reforms are necessary for the D.C. courts, and they just do not want to hear it. So pushback from them, which is unfortunate. Um, so it's been mixed. I mean, and I've received support from the legal community, both in D.C. and outside of it. But there are definitely attorneys who say, you know, the right professional decision would have been not to report the misconduct. And aren't you concerned this will tarnish your reputation to speak publicly? But overall, I've received a lot of support. I'm very grateful for that. 
And I know that I stand on the shoulders of brave law clerks who came before me and who've already spoken out on this issue and for whom the response was not uniformly positive. So I'm definitely grateful to the other advocates in the movement who've spoken out on this issue. And just so we can clarify, and I probably should have brought this up earlier, specifically, I think when we say D.C. courts, a lot of people think we're just assuming all it's all federal courts. But there's like Washington, D.C., the courts in the city, and they're kind of like a, a special animal, right? Because they're kind of put in place by the feds, but they deal with the city. Um, I mean, for this discussion, we're talking about the the all the the federal judiciary, but D.C. specifically, would that fall that falls under this as well, right? It's unclear. So I am advocating um, the point of my statement for the record was to advocate for an amendment to the Judiciary Accountability Act to cover the D.C. courts. So the D.C. courts are Article One courts. That means they were created by Congress. There are other Article One courts, Court of Federal Claims, tax courts, bankruptcy courts, a whole variety of Article One courts. Um, those judges do not have life tenure. Many, but not all of them are Senate confirmed for 14 or 15 year terms. Some are covered under the J right now. Most are covered under the Judicial Conduct and Disability Act. So the D.C. courts are hybrid state federal courts. Um, our judges here in D.C. are Senate confirmed for 15 year terms, and they're basically rubber stamped by the Commission on Judicial Disabilities and Tenure for a second 15 year term. Um, I would argue that they are federal courts. They are an Article One federal court created by Congress. They do hear cases on local issues. And I think the intent when they were created in 1970 was to be D.C.'s local court system, but they pretty much operate at this point like federal courts. They're regulated by Congress, funded by the federal budget, uh, which puts them in a unique hybrid state federal um, mix. And one of the issues I'm trying to raise about Article One courts is that it's unclear whether Article One courts employees are protected under Title Seven of the Civil Rights Act. Um, because, you know, they're considered to be our local, our local judges, and yet they're an Article One federal court. So it's a gray area and one I'm trying to raise awareness of. That's it for this episode of KYW News Radio In-Depth. You can listen to the podcast free anytime on the Odyssey app, and you can find it wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Matt Leon, and we'll have another episode out soon.